Hello, I wanted to let you know that this Flirtations Life to Tape podcast recording of The Girl Aviator's visual audiobook is funded by viewer support. If you would like to help out as well, you can visit flirtationsdonations.com where there are many ways you can help support Flirtations and the Flirtations Live to Tape and our sister sites. There you can find ways you can donate through PayPal, you can set up reoccurring subscriptions on PayPal or also on Patreon. There are many levels on Patreon on which you can support. And there is also an Amazon wish list that will help us with equipment uh, donations. And we also accept cryptocurrencies as well. If you're old school and you like to send uh, checks, we have our P.O. Box information also on that page at flotationsdonations.com. I want to thank everyone who has helped support this series so far, and I hope you help too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Flotations Live Today podcast. We are continuing from where we left off, reading The Girl Aviators and the Motor Butterfly. Chapter 5. Peggy's Thoughtfulness Saves the Farm Flash after flash, roar after roar, the lightning and the thunder crashed and blazed as the full fury of the storm struck in. Miss Prescott, who was in deadly fear of lightning, covered her eyes with a thick veil and sank back into the cushions of the chinoo. But the rest of the party regarded the furious storm with interest. The rain was coming down in sheets, but not one drop penetrated the waterproof top of the big touring car. It's grand, isn't it? asked Peggy after a particularly brilliant flash. Um, ah, I just don't know, rejoined Jess. It's rather too grand, if anything. I bang. There was a sharp report that, like of a large cannon, the air was filled with an eye-blistering blaze of blue fire, stunned for an instant and half-blinded, not one of the young folk in the touring car uttered a word. The storm, too, appeared to be holding its breath after that terrific bombardment. That struck close by, declared Roy, the first to recover his speech. Oh, oh, moaned Mrs. Prescott. Then the next will hit us. Don't be a goose, Aunt Sally, confronted Peggy. Don't you know that lightning never strikes twice in the same place? Miss Prescott made no answer. In fact, she had no opportunity to do so. From close at hand, shouts were coming. Loud, frightened shouts. Fire, fire. Gracious, something's on fire at that farmhouse, cried Peggy. That's what, came in excited tones from Roy as he peered through the arm, through the rain. Look at them running about, chimed Jimsy. It's from that haystack. See the smoke rolling up? cried Bess. The lightning must have struck it. Say, we better go and help, exclaimed Roy anxiously. I don't see that old man who was so mean to us deserves any help, muttered Bess rather angrily. Why, Bess, for shame, reproved Peggy. Go on, boys. The rain's letting up. Maybe you can help them. All right, sis. Come on, Jimsy. The boys dived out of the car and set off running at top speed for the scene of the blaze, which was in a haystack back of the main barn of the farmhouse. Several farmhands, under the direction of the disagreeable old man, whose name was Zenas Hutchings, were running about with buckets of water, which were about as effective as trying to sweep the sea back with a broom, so far as gaining any headway against the flames was concerned. Had the rain continued, it might have been possible for the farmhands to quell the blaze with the assistance of the elements, 
but the storm had ceased almost suddenly as it had began, and only a few scattering drops were now falling off to the southwest. The sky was blue once more. The farmer turned desperately to the boys as they came running up. Car de goodness, if it ain't them kids again, he exclaimed, well, you ain't brought me nothing but bad luck so far as I can see. Har, a hundred dollars worth of hay gone up in smokes. A farmhand came bustling up. His face was pale under the grim of soot that overlaid it. Ay, we don't get her fire under control pretty soon, he cried. The whole place will go. What's that, Jed? snapped old Hutchings anxiously. I said that the sparks is beginning to fly, and fly much hotter than anything else ablaze. Why, hey, that's so, cried old Hutching in an alarmed voice. His gazed about him perplexedly. Isn't there any fire apparatus here? asked Roy. Yeah, at Topman's Corner, but that's five miles off. Have you telephoned them? asked Jimsy, who had noticed that the Hutching farm, like most up-to-date ones, was equipped with a telephone. At least there were wires running into the place, which appeared to be of that nature. Ain't no use telephoning. Was disconnected, late rejoiner. Why? The wires busted. Reckon the storm put it out of business. I guess it's all up to me now. I hope to pay off their part of the mortgage with their hay and the grain in the barn yonder. Now he broke off in a half-sob, cantankerous as the old man had shown himself to be, and grasping withal. The boy could not help but to feel sorry for the stricken old fellow. He looked pitifully bowed and old and wretched in the midst of his distracted farmhands who were running about and shouting and not doing much of anything else well he said at length pulling himself together with visible effort there's no chance of getting the fire engines so i'll have to go i guess yes there's a chance of getting the engines and a good one too they all turned at the sound of a girlish voice and there stood peggy with just by her side the two girls had stolen up unnoticed in excitement. Bravo, Peg, exclaimed Roy heartily, glancing approvingly at his sister. What's your idea? Fly over and get help. Fly over while I'll be switched, gasped old Hutchings. I don't see why not, struck in Jimsy. It's five miles, you say. Well, we ought to make that in ten minutes or so, or even quicker. How fast can the engines get back, asked Roy patiently. Well, the roads is good, and Bob Shields... A right smart team was his was the rejoinder. They ought to make it in half an hour. Good. Then if you can hold off the flames and check in for a short time longer, we can save your place yet. Beckoning to Jimsy, the boys darted off for the Red Dragon, the machine he had selected, because the exception of the dart, it was the fastest and lightest of airplanes that had with them. Farmer Hutching had hardly closed his mouth from its gaping expression of surprise when the whirl of the motor announced that the Red Dragon was off. Its lithe body shot into the air with tremendous impetus. The corner is off, and there westward, shouted the farmer. You can't miss it. It's got a red brick church with high tower on it right in the middle of the slump of elms. Speeding above fields, the woodland, the red messenger, pending disaster, raced through the air. Five minutes after taking flight, Jimsy espied a high red tower. Eight and one half minutes after the dragon had shot aloft, it fluttered to earth on the village street of Topman's Corner amid an amazed group of citizens who had seen it approaching. 
It was the first airplane ever seen in the remote Pennsylvania hamlet, and it created a commensurate excitement. But the boys had no time to answer the scores of questions, foolish and otherwise. They were volleyed at them from all sides. There's a fire, exclaimed Jim Z breathlessly, a fire at Hutchings Farm. How soon can you get the engines there? A stalwart-looking young fellow stepped up. I'm chief of the department, he said. We're the Valance, and I'll be there in 25 minutes. I have to kill... I have to kill the horses. It's downhill most of the way, anyhow. Jim, you run off and ring her bell. A second later, the fire bell was loudly clanging, and several of the cloud crowd melted away to don their helmets and coats. In less time than the boys would have thought it possible, a good-looking engine came rumbling out of the firehouse, half a block down the streets. Behind it came a hook and ladder truck. Fine horses were attached to each, and from the way they leaped off, the boys saw that the chief meant to make good on his promise. Racy to the fire, shouted the latter functionary, as in the storm of cheers, his apparatus swept out of sight and down the elm-brooded street. You're on, left, Roy, whiskily walk aloft, while the topman quarters were still wondering within themselves if they were waking or dreaming. Chapter 6 The Girl Aviators in Deadly Peril The fire was out. A smoldering blackened hillock was all that remained of the sack ignited by the lightning bolt, but the others and the main building of the farm had been saved. Such work was a new task for airplanes, but there was no doubt that it had been for Peggy's suggestion the Hutchings farm would have been burnt to the ground, as it was when the firemen, their horses and ladder, arrived at the scene. The farmhands who had been fighting the flames were almost exhausted. They had possessed the time the young folks would have been glad to tell the curious firemen something about their airplanes, but it was well into the afternoon. If they intended to keep up their itinerary, it was necessary for them to be hurrying on. A short time after the blaze had been declared out, the airplanes once more soared aloft, and the auto chugged off in the direction of Meadville. Soon after the sun shone sparkling on the trees, the fields below all freshened by the downpour of the early afternoon. The spirits of those rose, as did the machines, as they raced along. Before leaving the Hutchins farm, the old man had been so moved to the generosity by the novel manner in which his farm had been saved from destruction that he had offered to give back $2.50 of the $5 he had demanded for the rent of the field. Of course, they had not taken it, but the evident anguish which the offer was made afforded much amusement to the young aviators as they soared along. In Peggy's machine, the talk between herself and Jess was one of strange finding of the wren and of the children curious ways. Both girls recalled her odd contact during the storm and what she had said about the particular influence of lightning on her memory. Depends on it, Jess, declared Peggy with conviction. That child is more a gypsy than you or I. Do you think she was stolen from somewhere? asked Jess, readily guessing the drift of her friend's feelings. I don't know, but I'm sure they had no legal right to her, was the reply. Oh, Peg, suppose she turns out to be a missing heiress. Jessie, who loved a romance, clasped her gauntleted hands. Peggy left. Missing heiresses are not so common as you might suppose, said she. 
I never met anyone who had encountered any except in storybooks. Still, it would be great if we had really found a long-missing child or something like that, concluded Jess rather lamely. I can't see how we would be benefiting from the child or its parents either, since we have no way of knowing who the latter are. Rejoining the practical Peggy, which remarked close to the the discussion for the time being. It was not more than a half hour later when Jess uttered a sharp cry of alarm. From the forward part of the aeroplane, a wisp of smoke had suddenly curled upward like a blue serpent of vapor. It dissolved in the air almost so quickly as to make Jess believe for an instant that she had been the victim of a hallucination. But that was no figment of her imagination, was the evidence a few moments later by Peggy's herself aroused by Jess's cry. She had made an inspection of the machine with alarming results. What they were speedily becoming they what these were speedily becoming manifest. Jess, the machine is on fire, she cried affrightedly, as if by verification of her words came a puff of flame and a strong reek of gasoline. It was just then that both girls recalled the golden butterfly carried twenty five gallons of gasoline without countering the reserve supply. A fire on an airplane is even more terrifying than a similar casualty on any other type of machine. Hardly had Peggy's words confirmed the alarming news left her lips that there came a cry from Jess. The girls had just glanced at the barometer, the biograph. It had showed that they were fifteen thousand feet above the surface of the earth. The girls had hardly made this discovery before. From beneath the bow of the monoplane came a wave of flame driven from the sheer the steering wheel by the heat. Peggy drew back toward her companion. Her face was a sheen white. Left to itself, the airplane yawed wildly like a craft without a rudder. Then suddenly it dashed down toward the earth, smoke and flames leaping from its front part. Both girls uttered a cry of terror as the aircraft fell like a stone hurled into space. Faster and faster, it dashed earthward without a controlling handle to guide it. It was at an instant that Roy and Jimsy became aware of what had happened. Instantly, they swung their machine around in time to see the golden butterfly make her sickening downward swoop. Both lads uttered a cry of fear as they saw what appeared to mean certain death for the two girl aviators. Roy fingered scarcely grasped the wheel of his machine as he saw the downward drop. Jimsy was as badly affected, but almost before they could grasp the full realization of the accident, the golden butterfly was almost on the ground. It was a hilly bit of country interspersed by small lakes or ponds. A freak of the wind caught the blazing airplane, and it fell and drove it right over one of these small bodies of water. The golden butterfly appeared to hesitate for one instant and then plunged right into the water, flinging the two girls out. Both were expert swimmers, but the shock of sudden descent and the abrupt manner in which they had been flung into the water had badly unstrung their nerves. Jess struck out violently, but the next instant uttered a cry, Peg, Peg, I'm sinking. Peggy plucked Peggy pluckingly struck out for her chum and succeeded in seizing her. Then, with brisk strokes, she made for the shore, luckily only a few yards distance. It was at this juncture that the boy's machine came to earth and almost simultaneously, high above Bez Dart, hovered it presently. 
it too began to drop downward. Apparently, the accident had not been seen from the auto. At any rate, the car was not turned back toward the scene of the accident. As the boy's aeroplane struck the earth, not far from the bank of the pond toward Peggy, was at that moment valiantly struggling the two young aviators, leaped out and set out at turn to the rescue. They reached the bank in the nick of time to pull out the two drenched half-exhausted girls. At any rate, the fall was a lucky one, in a way, gasped the optimistic Peggy. As soon as she caught her breath, it put out the fire. And so it had. Not only that, but the airplane buoyed up by its broad wings was still floating. On board the Red Dragon was a long bit of rope. Jimsy produced this and then swam to the drifting butterfly. The rope was made fast to it, and the craft dragged ashore. But when they got it to the bank, the problem arose as to how they were going to drag it up the steep acclivity. Again and again they tried. Bess, who had this time aligned aiding them, but it was all to no purpose. Even their united strength failed to move the heavy apparatus. I've got an idea, shouted Jimsy suddenly, during a pause in their laborious operations. Good, don't let it get away. I beg of you, implored Peggy. Oh, Peg, don't tease. Besides, you don't look a bit cute with your hair all wet and dang dangled. And as for your dress, goodness... This came from Jess, herself sadly rumpled, and in addition wet, though, before Peggy would reply to her chum's half-rallying remark, Jimsy, unabashed, continued, Well, I hitch this rope to the red dragon, and then start her up for all she's worth. Jimsy, you're a genius, a martin marvel, a solid promontory of pure gray matter. It turns the remarks came from each of the party, but Jimsy, bothering not at all at the laughing enormous, proceeded to secure the rope to the red dragon. This done, he started up the engine and clambered into the seat. All ashore that's going ashore, he yelled in mocking imitation of a stewardess of an ocean liner. There wasn't an instant hesitation as he threw up, load upon the engine, and the rope taunted. It grew tight and as a fiddle string. Goodness, it will snap, and the red dragon will be broken, cried Jess in alarm. But no such thing happened. Instead, as the dragon's powerful propeller's blades bit into the air, the golden butterfly obediently mounted the steep bank of the pond. Five minutes later, the pretty craft stood on dry land, and partly, and the party of young aviators were eagerly making an investigation of the damage done. The cause of the fire was soon found. A tiny leak in the tank had allowed some gasoline to drip into the bottom of the chassis or passenger carrier. Collecting there, it was plain that a back of fire of the carburetor had ignited it. Neither of the girls could repress a shudder as they thought of what might have occurred had they been higher in the air with no convenient pond handy for them to drop into. In such a case, the flames might have reached the gasoline tank before they could be extinguished and inevitably a fearful explosion would have followed. I think you two are the luckiest girls in the world, declared Roy solemnly as he concluded his examination and announced his conclusion. Naturally, they fully agreed with him. Chapter 7. A Stop for the Night It was some... Two hours later that Meadville received the greatest excitement of its career. 
people rushed out of stores and houses as a flock of airplanes came into sight. As they gazed down, the young aviators felt a momentary regret that they had chosen a town in which to pass the first night of their motor flight. It appeared that they would get into difficulties when they attempted to make a landing, but almost simultaneously they spied a public park which appeared to offer a favorable landing place. As soon as their intentions of descending there became manifest, however, a crowd made a headlong rush for the spot. It was too late to seek some other location to align, even had there been one available. Trusting to luck, the eager spectators would get out of the way. The four airplanes began their spiraling descent. Roy was the first to his big biplane as the ponderous white machine ranged down close to the park. The crowd began well-nigh uncontrollable. They swarmed beneath the big machine, despite Roy's shouting of warning. Skillfully, the boy manipulated the craft. He could not check its descent once began. Out of the way, don't you want to? I don't want to hurt you, he shouted as he dashed down, but the crowd, sheep-like in their stupidity, refused to budge. Into the midst of them, Roy perforced and was compelled to drive. One of the throng perceived his intention. However, they scattered wildly. That is, all sought positions of safety, but one man, a stout, red-faced individual who appeared dazed or befuddled. He stood his ground, glaring foolishly at the skyship, and with a quick turn of his wrist, Roy swept the big plane aside, but a wing tip brushed the stout man, toppling him over in a twinkling. By the time Roy had stopped his machine, the man was already on his feet. Bellowing furiously, he was not hurt, but his face was contorted with anger. He pushed away through the crowd toward the young aviator. You young scoundrel, he yelled. I'll fix you for that. I'll look out there. Here comes the rest of them, shouted the crowd at this juncture. Nobody needed any warning this time. They fled in all directions, one after the other. Golden Butterfly, the Red Dragon, and the pit, pretty graceful dart dropped to earth. Ah, oh, look at them gals, ye shouted the voice in the crowd. What's the country coming to? demanded another man. Gals gallivanting around like golden golden birds. But the majority of the crowd took the pretty girl aviators to its heart. Somebody set up a cheer. It was still ringing out when the huge relief of the embarrassed, embarrassed girls the auto came rolling up with Miss Prescott and the wind, as they still called the latter. The girls, leaving the boys to look after the airplanes, ran to the side of the car where, speedily escorted in a roomy tenue, or ill, see you at the hotel, cried Roy, as the car rolled off again, much to the disappointment of the crowd. Two local constables came up at this juncture and helped the boys keep the crowd back from the machines. The throng seemed souvenir mad. Many of them insisted on writing their names on, with pencils on the wing of the aircraft. Others would have gone further and actually stripped the airplanes of odd parts had they not been held back. This is the last time we'll land in a town of this size, declared Roy indignantly as he helped the constable shove back the auspicious individual who insisted on examining the motor of the dart. With the help of the constable and a sheltering place for the machines was finally found, 
A livery stable that had gone out of business the week before was located across the street from the small park in which they had aligned. The owner of the property happened to be in the crowd, and a bargain with him was soon struck. The airplanes were then trundled on their land wheels unto the shelter, and the doors closed. Roy, for a small sum, engaged a tall, gangling-looking youth, whose name was Tam Tamis, to guard the door and keep off the inquisitive. This done, thoroughly tied out, tired out, the boy sought the hotel. Like most towns of its size and importance, Meadville only boosted one holstery worthy of the name. This place was the Fountain House, as it was called, was a decent enough-looking hotel, and the young aviators were warmly welcomed. After supper, for in Meadville nobody dined, Miss Prescott and the girls sauntered out with the wren to obtain some clothing for the wharf who had so strangely come into their possession. It was odd, but somehow they none of them even suggested giving up the queer little foundling to the authorities as had originally been their intention. Instead, although none of them actually voiced it, it appeared that they technically they had decided to keep the child with them. While they were gone on their errands of help, Roy and Jimsy were seated on the porch of the hotel, watching with more or less languid interest the inhabitants of the town passing back and forth. Many of them lingered in front of the hotel, for aviators were not common objects in that part of the country, and already the party had become local celebrities. I guess we'll go inside, said Roy at length. I'm getting sick of being looked at, as if I was some sort of natural curiosity. Same here, returned Jimsy. I'll go in, and I'll play a game of checkers. You're on, was the response. But as the boys rose to go, or rather, the instant before they left their seats, there came a heavy step behind Roy, and a gruff voice snarled, What are you doing in that chair? Sitting in it, responded Roy, in not so too pleased, pleasant voice. The tone in which he had been addressed had aroused a hot resentment in him toward the speaker. Turning, he saw the same red-faced man whom he had the unfortunate enough to knock down. Instantly, his manner changed. He felt genuinely sorry for the accident, and hastened to explain that such was the case. But a glowering glance was the only response he received. "'You done it on purpose. Don't tell me,' snarled the red-faced individual. "'And now you get right out of that chair, or I'll make you.' Both boys stared at the man in amazement. His tone was coarse and bullying to a degree. We're not occupying these chairs to your inconvenience, declared Roy stoutly. There was a lot of others. He indicated several rockers placed at intervals along the hotel porch and all empty. That chair you're sitting in is mine, snapped the man. In response, got a mortgage on it, eh? Smiled Jimsy admirably. I'll show you kids how much of a mortgage I've got on it, was the reply. It was just then that the lad about Roy's own age, but with a surely hangdog sort of look, emerged from the smoking room of the hotel. What's up, father? He demanded, addressing the red-faced man. Why, Dan, these kids have appropriated my chair. Oh, those flying kids? Well, they'll see that they ain't everything about here, responded the lad. I reckon Jim Castle has some say here, eh, Dan? I reckon so, son, grinned. The red-faced man, in response to his elegant speech, 
Now then, are you going to give up that chair or not? I was just leaving it when you came out, rejoined Roy, who by this time was fairly boiling over. Under the present condition, however, I think I shall continue to up to occupy it. You will, eh, snarled Don Castle, then I'll show you how to vacate it so. With the words, he laid his hands on the back of the chair and jerked it from under the young aviator. Roy, caught entirely off his guard, was flung to the floor on the porch. He was up in a dash, but as he rose to his feet, Dan Castle had evidently, excited by what he had deemed a great triumph, aimed a savage blow at him. Grimsby was rushing to his assistance, but the red-faced man suddenly blocked his path. Hold off, son, hold off, he warned, unless you want to get the same dose. Chapter 8 Roy Makes an Enemy In the meantime, Roy had skillfully avoided Dan Dan Castle's blow and was aggressively on the defense. He was a lad who did not care for fighting, but notwithstanding was a trained boxer. Something of this seemed to dawn on Dan Castle, who, as the boys he sought to pummel, dodged his attack with such cleverness. For the moment, Dan stood stock still with doubled up fists and a scowl not unhandsome, though weak and precarious features. There was then with a bellow, he rushed upon Roy, who contented himself by sidestepping the furious onslaught. This appeared to enrage Dan Castle the more. Either he interpreted it as portraying cowardice, or else he deemed it that his had his opportunity at his mercy. At any rate, after an instant pause, he rushed at Roy with both fists, and it was the young aviator's opportunity. Look out, he warned. The instant the prognostious Dan Castle found himself on his back, regarding a multiple constellations. At almost precisely the same time, Jimmy's fist happened to collide with the point of jaw of the fallen batter's father. Sorry, but I simply had to, you know remarked the nonchalantly Jimsy as the red-faced man found himself occupying a position not so dissimilar to that of his son. Both boys were heartily sorry for what had happened, the more so for the reason that at the very instant both crestfallen bullies were scrambling to their feet. The hotel door opened and several guests came out to ascertain the cause of the trouble. Among them was Jonas Hardcastle, a proper the proprietor of the place. What's up? What's the trouble? He demanded in dismay as he viewed the scene of confusion. It's those brats of aviators, or whatever they call themselves, bellowed Castle, who was purple with fury. They attacked Dan and me and assaulted us brutally. The landlord looked doubtfully at the man. Then he turned to Roy. What are the facts? He said. Roy told him, Roy told him unhesitatingly the whole truth when he had concluded Jonas Hardcastle spoke. You've been hanging around here too long, Jim Castle, he said in a voice that quivered with indignation. Now make yourself scarce, both of you and your son. Don't annoy my guests any more. Castle nursing a spot on his jaw, which was rapidly growing a beautiful plum color, lurched off without a word. His son followed. It was not until... He reached the street that he spoke. Then in a voice that trembled from suppressed fury, he hissed out, All right for you kids. You think you've played a smart trick on Dan and me, but I'll fix you. Just watch. 
Without uttering another syllable, he slouched off into the gathering darkness, followed by his son, who bestowed a parting scowl on Roy and Jimsy. I'm sorry for that you had a row with them, remarked Jonas Hardcastle as the pair vanished. How's that? inquired Roy. They forced it on us, and I know, I know all about that, was the rejoinder. But Castle is quite by way of being a political hereabouts, and he might try to make it uncomfortable for you. In what way? demanded Jimsy. Oh, many ways. Those fellows have no scruples. Tell you the truth, boys. I guess you haven't heard the last of this. With this, he left them and pray to no very comfortable thoughts. I am half inclined to believe that, he said, declared Jimsy. In just what way? Why, about the harm this fellow castle can do to us. In every community like this, you'll find one local poobah who runs things pretty much as he looks. They have satellites who will do just about as they're told. You mean that we'd better keep a good lookout on the airplanes? From my judgment of Castle, I don't think he's got the nerve enough to attack us directly, but he can wreck his vengeance on our machines if we don't watch pretty closely. I'm inclined to think you're right, but don't say a word of this to the girls. It might upset them. You and I will decide on the plan of action later on. To tell you the truth, I'm not any too sure of our newly acquired watchman, Tam Tamas. Nor I will wait till the rest go back and then take a to stroll down that lively table. Seems funny, doesn't it, to stable airplanes in a livery stable? Well, why not? Wasn't Pegasus the first flying machine on record? A horse? Humph. That's so, agreed Jimsy, with a pull of classic knowledge that was none too plentiful. It was not long after this that the girls returned. With them came the wren in a neat dress and new shoes, altogether different-looking little personage from the wharf, the waif of the woods wherein they had rescued at noon. Why, wren, cried Peggy, you are positively pretty. In a month's time, we won't know you. In a month's time, sighed the child, I am going to stay with you as long as that. Miss Prescott caught the wren little figure in her arms. Yes, and many months after that, she cried. John and Jimsy exchanged glances. Another member of the family exclaimed, Roy, if we go at this rate, we'll have inquired an entire set of new sisters by the time we reach Big Smokies. Chapter 9 Jimmy Falls Asleep Anybody been around, Tam? Roy asked the question as later on, that evening, he and Jimsy dropped around the, the disused livery stable in accordance with their plan. Tam shook his head. Nobody been around, he rejoined. And then after a moment's pause, except Jim Castle and his boy Dan. Jim Castle and his son, echoed Roy, the very people we don't want around here. What do they want? They want to know where you been, rejoined Norwegian, the re Norwegian youth. Yes, and what did you tell him? I bade him tell him I shall know nothing, responded Tam. And then they bade ask me if I have a key to the door. Oh, did they? What did you say? I said, I do not have a key. Then what did they do? They bade go away. Didn't say anything else? No, they just go. Said nothing about coming back. No? All right, Tarn, you can go home now. 
Here's your money. You ain't want me no more? No, we'll watch here ourselves tonight. Good night. Good night, rejoined Tam, pocketing his money and shuffling off down the street. He had hardly gone two blocks when from the shadow of an elf-shaded yard the figure of Dan Castle slipped out and intercepted him. So you've been fired, eh? He shot the question at the simple-minded Norwegian lad with vicious emphasis. No, they ain't fired me. They've been telling me no more want me. Now isn't that being fired? Moreover, I can tell you that they've hired another fellow in your place. The Norwegian youth's light blue eyes lit up with indignant fire. Like most of his race, he was keenly sensitive once aroused, and while he was quite agreeable to being dropped from his temporary job, he hated to think of being supplanted in it. Crafty Don Castle was playing his cards well, for the purpose that will be seen ere long. So they bane fire me, ejaculated Tam. That's the size of it. I guess you feel pretty sore, Tam, don't you? No, they bane pay me well, but I no like being fired. I should think not. The idea of a man like you being dropped. What did they tell you when they let you go? They bane tell me, watch the place themselves. Dan Castle smiled. His crafty methods had elicited something of real value after all. Did they say they were going to watch all night, he asked. Yes, rejoined the Norwegian. They ask about you too. Humph, what do they want to know? If you'd been around this table and what I'd been telling you, what did you say? I tell them the truth. I say you and your father being by the stable this evening. Dan's face darkened. You had no business to tell them anything, he snarled. Then, with sudden change of front, see here, Tam, do you want to make some money? Sure, I've been like make money. Then come into the house a minute. Dan and I want to talk to you. So saying, Don took the Norwegian by the arm and led him through the gate and the white shit and whitewashed picket fence. Beyond the fence was a fairly precarious looking house on the plaza of which lounged Jim Castle smoking a cigar. Well, Tam, he said, lost your job? The Norwegian replied in the affirmative. Well, never mind. I've got another for you, replied Jim Castle, in what was for him a wandering, admirable tone. Can you go to work at once? I been work all the time, spoke the Norwegian. A puzzled expression flitted over his face as both Castle broke into what was him an inexorable fit of laughter at his words. In the meaning, the boy had telephoned to the hotel that work on the airplanes would detain them till late. They did not wish to inform the girls that they were undertaking a night watch, as that would have led to all sorts of questions, and if fears proved ungrounded, they felt pretty sure of coming in for a lot of joshing. They agreed to divide the night into two parts, Jimsy watching till midnight, then awakening, Roy, who would take up the vigil till dawn. This arrangement having been made, they secured a light lantern from an adjacent hardware store and entering the deserted livery stable, prepared to carry out their plans. With the canvas covers of the airplanes, Roy managed to fix up quite a comfortable bed on a pile of hay and left in a sort of loft over the banded stable. As for Jimsy, he made himself as comfortable as possible in the chassis of the golden butterfly, the seat of which were padded and luxurious as those of a touring car. 
He had a book dealing with the aeronautic subjects with him and drawing the lantern close to the airplane. He buried himself in the volume. In the meantime, Roy had rolled himself up in the canvas covering and was sound asleep. For a long time, Jimsy read on. At first, frequent footsteps passed the door of the stable, but as it grew later, they ceased. Folks went to bed early in Maidville. Long before midnight, there was not a sound on the streets. Jimsy read doggedly on, but he was painfully conscious of the almost irresistible desire to back and doze off, if only for a few seconds. The exciting events of the day had tired him, nor was the book he was reading one calculated to keep his wits stirring. It was a technical work of abstract character, of obtruse character. Jimsy head began to nod. With a sharp effort, he roused himself only to catch himself dozing off once more. See here, Jim Bancroft, this won't do, he sharply admonished himself. You're on duty, understand? On duty. Wake up and keep your eyes open. But try as he would, tired nature finally asserted herself, and Jimsy's head fell forward. His eyes closed for good, and he snored in right good earnest. He was sound asleep. It was about a half hour after he dozed off that the window of the rear stable framed a face, a crafty, eager face that was as yellow light of the lantern revealed its outline. Dan Castle, for it was he, gazed sharply about him. He swiftly took in the posture of the sleeping boy and smiled spread over his countenance. Jumping from the ladder he had raced outside, he joined two figures waiting for him in the shadows of the livery barn. It's too easy, chuckled. One of the kids there is sound asleep. Got everything ready? Day's all been ready, Mr. Castle, rejoined the slow, drawing voice of the Norwegian Tam. Now, don't botch the job, warned the elder Castle, who was the third member of the party. Remember, it means a lot of trouble for us if we're caught. No danger of that, Dad. Come on, I'll go first, and you and Tam follow. Is the window open? No, but it slides back. It's an easy drop to the floor from it. All right, go ahead. I'll be glad when the job's over. I'm almost inclined to drop out of it. And let those kids get away with what they did? Not much, Dad. We'll give them a lesson they won't forget in a hurry. Come on. He began climbing the ladder. Behind him came his worthy parent, and Tam formed the last member of the now-silent procession. Norwegian carried a bulk passage of some kind, the contents of which would have been impossible to guess, save that it gave out a metallic sound as Tam moved with it. Dan Castle reached the window and slid then noiselessly back in the groove, and then crawling through dropped slightly to the floor within. He was followed by his father and Tam, but Jimsy slept on, slept heavily and dreamless, while deadly peril crept upon him. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Flirtations Life to Tape podcast. This was the Junior Classics. This was the Girl Aviators, and we're reading the Motor Butterfly. The next chapter is Chapter 10, Peggy's Institution. Intuition. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hello. I wanted to let you know that this Flirtations Life to Tape podcast recording of the Girl Aviators visual audiobook is funded by viewer support. If you would like to help out as well, you can visit votationsdonations.com 
where there are many ways you can help support Fotations and the Fotations Live to Tape and our sister sites. There you can find ways you can donate through PayPal. You can set up reoccurring subscriptions on PayPal or also on Patreon. There are many levels on Patreon on which you can support. And there is also an Amazon li wish list that will help us with equipment uh, donations. And we also accept cryptocurrencies as well. If you're old school and you like to send uh, checks, we have our P.O. Box information also on that page at FotationsDonations.com. I want to thank everyone who has helped support this series so far, and I hope you help too. Thank you.